Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We are sitting where the Turanganui River joins the Pacific Ocean on the northeastern coast of the North Island of New Zealand, Gisborne, New Zealand. This is the spot where Lieutenant James Cook first made contact with the Maori people on October 8, 1769. We're sitting underneath a Morton Bay fig tree. It's absolutely gorgeous. The roots are spanning out, and we're sitting in between the roots that look like tentacles of an octopus. This tree is probably a few hundred years old, maybe even a thousand years old. And I'm sitting with Sheridan Gundry. Sheridan was born in Auckland and received a Bachelor's of Arts in English and Anthropology with a focus on Maori studies and linguistics. Sheridan is an award-winning journalist who works as a media team leader for Gisborne Civil Defense and Marine Oil Spill Response. Sheridan has written five books, and her most recent book is A Splendid Isolation, which is a general history of Gisborne and the East Coast. First of all, thank you so much, Sheridan, for meeting me here on The Trail Less Traveled. You're welcome. We're sitting in a very historically relevant site. We're going back to 1769 and before that. Then we'll go to more modern day. Sheridan, my first question for you is, where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in Devonport in Auckland, on the north shore of Auckland. And my parents were both writers. My father was a radio playwriter. By the time I was five, my mother worked at the local newspaper, the North Shore Times. And they were quite arty people. And at that time, which was in the 1950s, Devonport, which is now a very rich suburb, was a very poor suburb. It was where the bohemian-type people lived because it was the cheapest place in Auckland to be. And so they rented a house, which was a wonderful house on the edge of Mount Victoria in Devonport, one of the two major mountain hills there. I think they had cheap rent while they looked after a Presbyterian minister. And my mother provided him with meals, and we got cheap rent, I think. (laughs) But it was a wonderful place because we overlooked the whole of the Rangitoto Harbour. So you could see Rangitoto, great volcanic island there, right around to the middle of the city. So, oh, I just saw a fish jump. (laughs) So we grew up right by the sea and we wandered the whole of Devonport as children and it was a safe environment and we just wandered the beaches and swam where we wanted. But mainly we swam just down the road, which is a beach called Duda's Beach and it was just across the harbour from Auckland City. You're on the trail less traveled, and we are sitting here on the river mouth in Gisborne, New Zealand, on a spot where Lieutenant James Cook first made contact with the Maori in 1769. 
a little bit up river, we rode our bikes past a place where two rivers come together, the Taruheru River and the Waimata River. And then they become the Turanganui River. And this is the river mouth of the Turanganui River. So Sheridan, I'm going to hand it over to you and maybe you could just tell us the story. Probably I would start and just say that this area is rich in the history of New Zealand and the first great migration from Hawaii resulted in the settlement and occupation of this region. And waka, its canoes, such as the legendary Nukutai Mimeha and Paikea, who allegedly came on a whale, those great waka were followed by the Horota and Takitimu. So they were the first people who came here and settled. But the Endeavour and Lieutenant James Cook turned up in 1769 and they'd left England in August the previous year, 1768, on a scientific voyage of discovery. Well, it actually had a dual mission. The Royal Society was involved in various international observations of the transit of Venus across the face of the sun and they were aimed at calculating the distance of the sun from the earth and they'd had earlier observations but these were inconclusive so they were looking to set up another expedition which took in Tahiti in mid-1769 so they wanted a vessel and obviously someone at the helm that they could send to Tahiti to do these observations But at the same time, the Admiralty, the Royal Navy, heard about the plan and they wanted part of that action. But they weren't so intent on the scientific side of things. They were more intent on preserving and increasing the power and prestige of the British Crown. So they agreed on a dual mission. So it was to be a scientific voyage of discovery and also an imperial expedition to search for the southern continent called Terra Australis Incognito, which had been on maps for many years, but a lot of people (laughs) thought that it existed, but they weren't totally sure. So they wanted somebody to see if there really was this great southern continent like there was in the north. So that was part of the reason of pushing down to 40 degrees south at various points. And one of them was west of South America, and the other was down on the east coast, 40 degrees south which is down past Hawke's Bay, between Hawke's Bay and Wellington. So they left England in August 1768 and went via Tahiti. So it took a long time, more than a year, to get here. And on the 6th of October, they knew that land was getting close because there were porpoises in the water and there were seaweeds and different things that indicated that the land was close, but they still couldn't see it. So Cook promised two gallons of rum and giving the person's name to any land that was sighted. And Nicholas Young, he was just a young 12-year-old on the Endeavour and he was up the masthead on early afternoon of the 6th of October and he sighted land. It's commonly thought that the land he sighted was the White Cliffs at the south end of the bay, which Tangata Whenua called Teikuri or Teikuri Apaua. But Cook named this Young Nick's Head after young Nicholas Young. It seems now that the land that he saw was probably the higher peaks further inland. Cook's first landing here it was across the river. You can't see the landing site now because it's blocked by boats and logs, industrial area. But this first landing was marked by tragedy. 
When they first entered this bay, the area was sheltered by the ranges, and these were covered with thick forest, and it was home to the four main tribes here, were Rongafakata, Ngai Tahupo, that was later called Ngai Ta Manuhiri, Te Aitanga Mahaki, and Te Aitanga Hauati. The area was covered with grasslands, wetlands, swamps, scrub and great stands of trees on the flats and these provided a variety of foods and materials for weaving and building. And the sea was rich with seafood. This area along here at the time I believe it was called Te One Roa which is the long path. And later it was called Wai Kanai which is what we call it today but it's the water full of kanai which are mullet, it's fish and they would be in the river as well as down here and there were pippi, shellfish, mollusks, eels in the streams in a very healthy environment. So what they came into was already well established and there were groupings all along. The peoples were quite different just over this side of the river than they were further along and even different from two-thirds of the way down the bay and different from the ones right down the end of the bay. And they didn't necessarily get on. In fact, there was quite a lot of warring going on as became explained when you hear the story of what happened over the next few days. So the endeavour anchored before the entrance of this river, the Turanganui, and people have this idea of, well, it all happened on the 8th of October, but it all depends on whether you're following the ship time or land time. So there's a bit of confusion about that because the ship time goes up to midday, so anything that happened on that side of midday, they saw it as, say, the 7th or the 8th, and anything in the afternoon became the night. So it's a bit confusing. So I'll try and stick to the dates that I know that we try and promulgate, I suppose. So the Endeavour anchored just before the entrance of the Turanganui right here about 4pm on the 8th of October 1769. And some people saw it and they didn't know what it was. Some people thought it was a great bird. Others saw it as a floating island. They weren't sure. Some people thought it was a house full of divinities. And these have been recorded by others in the history that was more recent to 1769. These were the stories that were told. I would imagine that the Māori from here also knew what boats were because of so many their waka that were sailing around and people came here and in. But the sight of the Endeavour, which was such a tall ship, that would have been quite a shock, a surprise, and not knowing what was going on there at that time. So there were misunderstandings. Soon after anchoring Cook, Joseph Banks, who was the naturalist, botanist, Salander, Monkhouse, Green and Gore, and some seamen and marines went ashore on two boats to look for a watering place. And as they landed on the river's east bank, which is the other side of the river, from where we're sitting, the people they had earlier seen, because they saw some people when they were still on the boat, they saw these people, but they disappeared, so they didn't know where they'd gone. So they left four boys in charge of a small boat near the river mouth and the larger boat that they had, they ferried the others across the river to about where we're sitting to look for the people they'd seen. And as Cook and his party investigated these small settlements, four men armed with long spears rushed out of the trees on the foothills of Titirangi over there 
and the boys ran to their boat and rowed as fast as they could towards the river mouth to escape. And the man in charge of the other boat tried to frighten these men by firing shots above their heads. Of course, the local people would never have heard shots being fired and wondered what on earth was going on. The warriors brandished their weapons in response and they continued to advance on the boys. And when the leader lifted his spear to hurl it at the boat, the man in charge of the boat, the coxswain, fired again and killed him. His companions dragged the man's body about a hundred yards away and then retreated. They didn't take the body with them, they just left him on the beach. And Cook and his party were busy looking in these settlements. They crossed the river after hearing the first shots and they placed beads and nails on the man's body before returning to the ship at about 6pm. The dead man was later identified as Teimaro of the Ngati Onioni Hapu of Taiatanga Ahawati. That's all their land over there and further on. This first encounter involved misunderstanding on both sides. The encounter was probably intended to be a ritual challenge to find out if the visitors came in peace or with the intention of war. Cook's crew had no idea what was happening and the local people... They had no idea what was happening either, so there was misunderstanding on both sides. Tamaro, the man who was killed, he was a great gardener, and he was in charge of... There were gardens, I'm told, all the way from over there and all the way up the Waimata River to Anzac Park. And this chief, Tamaro... He was a well-ranked man and a chief in his own right who was in charge of all those gardens. And when he died, that person was no longer there and people fought about who was going to be the next person in charge of the gardens. And of course, the gardens at that time were just so important to keep people fed and well. It was a major event that happened and a case of misunderstanding. You are on the trail less traveled, recorded on location where Lieutenant James Cook first made contact with the Maori people a little after 4 p.m. on October 8, 1769. I'm sitting with Sheridan Gundry. Sheridan is an award-winning journalist who has written five books, and her most recent book is A Splendid Isolation, which is a general history of Gisborne and the East Coast of New Zealand. Sheridan right now is talking about the first day of contact, there's three days of interaction, and we're going to continue with the story. Here is Sheridan Gundry. The next morning, on the 9th of October, a large armed party went ashore to the river's east bank, the same bank over there at the foot of Titirangi, where they went the first day. Cook, Banks and Salander attempted to call out in the Tahitian language, of which they'd learned a little, I believe, they attempted to call out to about up to 100 men gathered on this side, the west bank, and the local men answered by starting a war dance, a haka, and their spears elevated above their head. A musket was fired across the river, and the ball struck the water, and the haka ended. More of Cook's men, including Green the astronomer, and Dr Monkhouse, and Ryatian star navigator Tupaya, who they'd taken with them from Tahiti, he called across the river in Tahitian and he made himself understood because his language was so close to the Māori of that day. 
He told the people that the Europeans wanted food and water and they offered iron in exchange. The people understood and Cook's party showed beads and nails, then threw a nail across the river, but it fell short and they were somewhat offended by that. It dropped into the water. The local men complained about the killing the day before and they refused to lay down their weapons. Tupaya, the star navigator, warned Cook's party to be on its guard. And in time, a local man stripped off and swam across. He landed on a rock, surrounded by water, and invited the Europeans to join him. Cook gave his musket to an attendant and went towards this man. They saluted by touching noses. This is known as a hongi, a sharing of breath. Where it happened was a rock in the middle of the what is now the harbour. This rock was actually blown up in 1877 by the Gisborne Harbour Board because many ships ran aground into rocks in the harbour, so they got rid of quite a few rocks. But this particular rock was a boundary marker and sacred to people on both sides of the river. There was no consultation. The Gisborne Harbour Board thought it was the best thing to do, but it was a major event in this history, having that rock taken from where we're sitting, I'm fairly sure we could see it if it were still there. Cook gave a few trinkets to the man that he met on the rock. We don't know his name. And this put the man in high spirits. This was a major event. It was the first formal greeting between Māori and European on this land that Tangata Whenua call Aotearoa. Cook also gave gifts to two other men who swam to the rock and he retreated to the east bank when their companions began a haka across the river. So there was a lot of excitement. People were given gifts and things were going on that they didn't really know what was happening and so a lot of intensity in the air as far as I can read. Another 20 or 30 men swam the river and they brought their weapons with them. They were given beads and iron. They didn't really seem to value, so they weren't that keen on that. But they began snatching the European arms out of the hands of Cook's men. One snatched the astronomer Green's short sword and waved it triumphantly above his head. Banks thought that this needed to be punished. You know, they didn't want this behaviour to escalate, taking virtually stealing their weapons. So Cook ordered the man to be fired at, and Banks shot the man in the back with small shot. Monkhouse followed. He fired his musket into the man's back, and he wounded him fatally. And this man was later identified as Tarako of Rongafakata, and that hapu is much further along the bay and inland. The other warriors retreated to Tetoka Atayo, the rock, but on seeing Tarako shot, they swam towards Cook's party. Cook, Green and Tupaya fired, wounding three more men with small shot. Cook was particularly saddened by the first encounter where Tamaro was killed, and that afternoon he took the boats to the south of the bay in search of fresh water because the river water was salty, so it was no good to them, and they desperately needed water, their reserves were low. He wanted to take some of the locals on board and treat them kindly and gain their friendship, but the heavy surf made it impossible to land near the houses they'd seen. At about two in the afternoon, as Cook's boats approached the cliffs of Takuri, two canoes came in towards the river. There's another river down the other end called Waipawa, 
both of the men tried to escape as Cook's boats approached, and Cook ordered a musket to be shot above their heads. The seven men and boys on board the smaller canoe began to hurl stones, paddles and even fish at them. Cook's men shot at them, and of the four wounded, two fell overboard and drowned. Three boys dived into the water, and Cook's men picked them up. The canoe was left to drift ashore with its cargo of two dead or dying men. It's not quite clear. The death toll now probably stood at nine. Banks, the first to fire that day, he too was full of sorrow, describing the day as the most disagreeable his life had ever seen. The kidnapped trio, the eldest was 19, youngest about 11, they relaxed once they understood they were not going to be eaten. So they were taken on board, they were fed European foods, they drank wine and water, but best of all I think they talked with Tupaya and spent the night aboard in beds, but they could converse easily with Tupaya, who put them at rest. The next day, the 10th of October, Cook's party went ashore to get wood. They took the three young men, by then dressed in clothes and ornaments they'd collected in Tahiti, and they crossed to the fishing village on the west bank. So this is here. The boys feared that they were going to be killed and eaten there, and they ran off inland, because even though they came from further along the bay, these people were not their friends, and they could have been killed. But of course Cook and his men didn't know that, but they soon learned. They wanted to return to their village towards Murawai, which is much further south along the bay. There's a stream we crossed over when we were biking, it's called the Waikanae Stream. Cook's group went up there shooting ducks and soon more than a hundred armed men in two groups began marching towards them. Cook's party quickly returned to the east bank and the three fisher boys joined them. The eldest took a garment he'd been given and placed it on the body of Tarako, which was still lying on the eastern riverbank. And then an old man presented a green bow to Tupaya in a gesture of reconciliation. He was in turn given nails, beads and ribbons. He broke another green bough and, stripped of clothes with his back to the body, threw the branch towards Tarako's body, which was later recovered by his people. The Endeavour party returned to the ship with the Fisher trio, and after dinner they were landed on the east side of the river, and eventually two men, part of their own whānau or family, crossed the river and took the boys with them back to their own part of the bay. On the 11th of October, the Endeavour pulled up its anchor and sailed south, out of the bay. They decided to go to 40 degrees south. They'd actually been instructed to go to 40 degrees south, and if they didn't find anything more agreeable to go further south, they'd turn back to the north. But their progress was slow, and by early afternoon, the Endeavour was held up by a calm three miles offshore between Whareonga-onga, around the corner from Young Nick's Head, and Tikifata to the south. Here, seven canoes and 50 people made their appearance, keeping their distance for a while until a group of four arrived from the north and went straight on board. So the people here had followed them around, and they knew by then that their intentions were peaceful. It's just the misunderstandings that occurred that ended in probably up to nine people dying. Banks and Gore recognised one of these people from this area as having been on the rock to Toka Atayo a few days earlier 
and Banks found out through then that the three Fisher boys were safely at home. So he was pleased about that. The man went on board with little fear because he'd heard how that trio of boys had been treated. And at that spot where the endeavour was becalmed, there was about 20 men from other canoes followed them on to the endeavour, and a trading frenzy ensued. This was the first peaceful trading that there'd been. The men traded just about everything they had, clothes from their back, ornaments, weapons and paddles, known as hoi, from their canoes. The occupants of one canoe, having sold all their paddles, offered to sell their boat as well, their waka. When they left several hours later, they took with them the especially prized white Tahitian tapa cloth, beads, trinkets, glass and even an axe and a tomahawk. So they were given a lot of European and Tahitian weapons artefacts in trade with those the Endeavour and his men received. It's believed that these could well have been presented to Tupaya himself because he was held in enormous respect both here and further up the east coast. But because Tupaya died on the way back to England, these were, of course, on the endeavour itself and they were presented to British Museum on the return to England. Just how many hoi were traded is unclear, but two are held in the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology in Cambridge in the UK. They're believed to have come from this set during this encounter. And other hoi are believed to be held in the British Museum to Papa Otongarewa in Wellington that also holds several. And the blades, they bear a painted kōwhaiwhai design. Cook left the area... He had planned to call this Endeavour Bay, but because he said it afforded us no one thing we wanted, because they didn't get the water they wanted, except for a little wood they got, he crossed out Endeavour in his journal and replaced it with Poverty Bay. And we've been affected by that name ever since. A lot of people really hate the word Poverty Bay and just feel, I mean, it was a terrible thing what happened here, but... We're a very rich area, and it's terrible to be saddled with that name. So those were the first few days. You are on the trail less traveled, recorded for you on location, on the spot where Lieutenant James Cook first made contact with the Maori people on October 8th, 1769, and we've just heard the story of what followed those three days and why this place was given the name Poverty Bay. But as you will find out from Sheridan as we continue this interview, this place is full of abundance. Sheridan Gundry was born in Auckland and she received a Bachelor of Arts in English and Anthropology with a focus on Maori studies and linguistics. She is an award-winning journalist and has written five books. Her most recent book is A Splendid Isolation, which covers a general history of Gisborne and the East Coast. Sheridan, it's now time to play a song. So I'd like for you to share a song with us that reminds you of your early childhood. I grew up with music. Somehow I discovered music in the church and I wasn't so keen on the religious side of church, but I loved the music. And I joined the church choir at quite a young age and I loved wearing the cassock that you wear when you're in the church choir and 
part of why I liked that was because it covered up whatever clothes you had on and nobody was rich or poor. And I guess I felt that we were from a poor family and it was quite good to just cover up and sing. My parents loved music. We had an early radiogram where we played records and we played everything. Jazz, musicals, anything you could imagine really, music of the era. And as I've said, my parents weren't well off, but all the money that they did have, they took us to every show going that came to Auckland, including My Fair Lady, Carousel, West Side Story. We went to everything, and I just got a love of theatre and music from that growing up. By the time I became the age of 10 or 11, I was in a choir at my intermediate school called the Belmont Singers, and we sang all sorts of songs and went on and did stage work with school productions and at high school we had singing every morning like most schools in New Zealand of that era we started our assembly by singing songs and we sang a lot of songs it wasn't one we would have sung half a dozen songs at the beginning of each assembly and when you asked Mandela what song might link me One just came into my head, and that was Jerusalem. It's a poem by William Blake that was set to music in the early 1900s. It just transports you somehow. He talks about having Jerusalem as England's national anthem rather than God save the Queen. Let's make it Jerusalem because, you know, what it's really about is against social injustice and inequality. Back to Mandela and the Trail Less Travel, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. You are on the Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure series. Harvested for you today underneath a fig tree on the spot where Lieutenant James Cook first made contact with the Maori people a little after 4 p.m. on October 8th, 1769. And we are sitting about 20 feet from the water at the river mouth, and I'm sitting with Sheridan Gundry. Sheridan was born in Auckland and received a Bachelor of Arts in English and Anthropology with a focus on Maori studies and linguistics. Sheridan is an award-winning journalist who has written five books, Her most recent book is A Splendid Isolation, which covers a general history of Gisborne and the East Coast. Earlier, Sheridan told us a story of the three days of interaction with Lieutenant James Cook and his men with the Maori peoples that live here. And there was tragedy in those days. And now we're going to move north in the days that followed when the Endeavour, their ship, sailed north and landed in Anaura Bay. And those days were much more peaceful. Cook went south to 40 degrees south, but he didn't find anything that made him want to go any further, so he headed north again. And by the time he left this area, which originally was called Turanga, Turanga Nui Akiwa, he didn't come on land again, he went further north and again tried to go in for water near Uawa, which is now called Tolaga Bay. But they weren't successful, and those people ushered him further north to Anaura Bay where it was also heavy surf and difficult to land but in those next few days where they did land 
their encounters were more peaceful. The people further north from this area had already heard about what had gone on. They'd heard about the tragedies, but they'd also heard that the people had come in peace and did want water and wood and food where they could. So it was a much better encounter. Cook wasn't really that taken with Anara. He didn't say great things about it. So they were there for a few days. They headed north again, but the winds, they were just battling winds the whole time, so they headed south and ended up just south of what is called Tolaga Bay at what is called Cook's Cove. We tend to anglicise so many names that have beautiful names to begin with. So the area is called Uawa and Cook's Cove is called Oputama. So here they did land and went on shore with Tupaya, who became a firm favourite of the people who lived there. There were lots of really good encounters. I won't go into details of that. But suffice to say that Tupaya was welcomed by the people and he talked with the local chiefs at length. And it seems that many children in the years to follow were named after Tupaya. It's not sure whether any of them were his actual children, but supposition, it's possible. I will skip another 60 years until 1831 when the first European trader, John Harris, came here to this area, Turanga. He actually bought land and set up the first trading station. He was only 23, which I think is quite remarkable that this man had come, bought just over an acre of land beside this river here, Turanganui, from the Māori chiefs, and erected what is believed to be the first European-style house and store. Soon after, George Reid, who called himself Captain George Reid, set up a store and a jetty near the confluence of the Waimata and Taraheru rivers, after he bought land in 1838 from a Māori chief, Kahutia. In 1871, he lent money to someone else to put up the first government wharf near the mouth of the Waikanae stream. Trading around that river just boomed from that time, and a skilled Māori horticulturist grew products for export as well, and the trader Takoti undercut Harris and Reed's monopoly by using Māori-owned coastal vessels to trade with Auckland. So Māori were a big part of that early boom in horticulture and trading. The whole area was a bustling centre of trade with everything until about 1900 coming in and going out by sea. So a lot happened from that time. I've also written a book about the five freezing works that operated in this district from 1889 when the first one was set up further up the Taruhiru River five freezing works that were operating in this district. The first was set up in 1889 up the Taruhiru River. They froze them and sent them down the river to a boat waiting, the Prince of Wales waiting in the harbour here. And then in 1896 a freezing works was set up on the east bank of the Turanganui River. We can see the remains from where we're sitting, there's now logs there. But that was the first freezing works in the township. And another freezing works was set up in Tokumaru Bay in 1910 and another in Waipawa in 1915, further up the Waipawa River. And so at Hicks Bay in 1919, 
that was the shortest lived from 1919 to 26 and for that era those seven years there were five works operating at the same time they closed progressively until the last one was the Kaiti works across the river here closed in 1994 it's since been replaced by logs forestry trees planted decades ago are just coming into harvesting well they have been progressively so from 2005 the tonnage coming out of the district's forests coming over the port was about 350,000 tonnes and in 2015 it was up to 2.3 million tonnes going across the port in 2015. What enabled all this port expansion to happen was the fact that the harbour was formed in the late 1920s when the Turanganui River was divided lengthways after a diversion wall was built and an inner harbour basin area was dredged. Before that, there was a terrible problem with silting in the river. Silt was coming down the river, particularly the Waimata, but also the Taruhiru, as a result of all the bush being felled and burnt. So all that natural cover coming from the land and then burnt and then erosion beginning to happen as hills slipped and we're a very geologically young country in this area and the silt coming from the soil which has been denuded of trees so silt built up in the harbour so they had to dredge it pick up the silt and take it out into the sea here the problem was just so great they really didn't know what to do about it they looked at diverting the Waimata River out to Wainui, north of here, which also would have been horrendous, but it was a continual problem, and for Gisborne to expand, they needed to do something. So that's why they built this wall that you can see here, a diversion wall, and split the harbour and the river. One of the areas just further up the river, called Heipipi, it was a par site. It's called Heipipi Endeavour Park. It was part of the original purchase of land for the township of Turanga. And it was a seasonal fishing village for early Māori with different groups, different family groups coming to harvest and process and store their catch there. It seems like it was a joint area where people could go peacefully to do that. So while some people laid claim to particular land, that area and this area here seem to have become a place where different family groups could come, like they do today really, to come on land where they can call it their own, public land where they could be at peace and still fish and swim and store, process their catch. But at that Heipipi area, just beside the Turanganui River, not far from where it converges into the Waimata and Taruhiru, it became an area where the government buildings stood and from very early days there was the courthouse and from 1902 a two-storied brick post office that looked more like it was out of England than this country and progressive earthquakes affected that building until it was demolished in 1966. So that park, Hey was called Endeavour Park in 1969 but we've changed a lot over the years and in 1990 that name Hey was restored and a unique carved canoe prow was built to mark the occasion. You'll see it, you might even take a photo of it. And then progressively industry 
took over that area and for 50 years from the early 1950s the cannery, J. Watty Canneries, took over that site all the way when we crossed that stream from there right up to Heipipi virtually was the Watty's Cannery Factory which was a wonderful thing for Gisborne because it developed industry and all the produce that's produced on these fertile flats was able to be processed here and gave people jobs and one of the downsides of that was the fact that they put a lot of waste into the river. The freezing works put a lot of their waste out to the sea. So when the freezing works finally closed and Watties finally closed, the river and the sea was in a much better state. And things had changed and people had to clean up their act. So there were good things and bad things about industry closing, but it was better for the environment. The council took over that area where Watties was in the late 1990s and a developer then bought it from council and a, a hotel and apartments and a reserve and now a popular walk cycleway is part of that area. So it's got a, a big history all along this river and up the rivers. You are on the trail less travelled, recorded on the edge of the Turanganui River where it joins the Pacific Ocean, a place with a lot of history and abundance in culture. I'm speaking with Sheridan Gundry, who is a award-winning journalist who has written five books, and her most recent book is A Splendid Isolation, which covers a general history of Gisborne and the East Coast. Sheridan, it's time for another song. Can you share a song with us, a song that's close to your heart? I first heard this song, it's part of a soundtrack, sung by Dame Kiri Takanawa, who is a opera singer who was born in this area. Her parentage is known, but for a long time it wasn't. She was adopted and sent to the best school. She just started as a young girl with a good voice and became an internationally renowned opera singer from here. That made it extra special, but there's something about the music itself that transports me to another place. It's from a series, Songs of the Averne, and in an old language. It's a love song, I suppose. Maybe a young girl calling across the river, saying, Shepherd, across the river you're hardly having a good time. Sing, Belero, Lero. He says, I'm not, and you too can sing, Belero. She says, Shepherd, the meadows are in bloom. You should graze your flock on this side. And he says, the grass is greener in the meadows on this side. Belero, Lero. Shepherd, the water divides us, and I can't cross it. Sing, Belero, Lero. Then I'll come down and find you. The music itself, it's uplifting, kind of sad and happy at the same time. It's the trail has traveled with Mandela. We are sitting here on the edge of the Turanganui River where it joins the Pacific Ocean. A spot that Lieutenant James Cook and his men first made contact with the Maori people almost 250 years ago on October 8, 1769. It's a beautiful day. We're sitting in the shade, which I'm grateful for, underneath a fig tree, which roots 
are wrapping around us like the tentacles of an octopus. Sheridan, I'd like to end this show with three adventure tips, bits of advice that you'd like to share with the listener. Number one, loose-fitting trousers and a scarf. Because sometimes it gets cold and you need to keep warm. A scarf can be great for keeping you warm or wearing as a sarong if you are hot. Tip number two, a notebook. I like writing things down about what happened on our adventures and I cannot be without a pen and a piece of paper. Tip number three, when in New Zealand, anywhere I go, I do like to take a lemon. That's beautiful, Sheridan. What song would you like to end the show with? I think it's a Segway song. It's a Segway song about a lemon. (laughs) Yeah, it's called Lemon Tree, and it's by a New Zealand group called The Nukes, a ukulele trio, and... I've chosen this song, one, because I absolutely adore lemons and cannot be without them in our garden, kitchen, cooking, and also because my husband and I started playing ukulele some years ago and we have our own group, an eight-strong group, play ukulele and we're involved with what's called the Gisborne Ukulele Underground here in Gisborne, where we attract sometimes over 100 people to a monthly gathering of people singing and where we put the words and music up on a screen and performers performing all ukulele. We heard about the Nukes who are based in Auckland, this trio, and managed to get them to come down to Gisborne and run workshops and give us a public performance. And I've always loved their song, Lemon Tree, which is just all about how fabulous lemons are and how you can use them in so many ways. And it's just a joyous song which is what ukulele is all about in fun Kia ora Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Travelled an adventure series dedicated to documenting humanity by collecting sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the planet Tonight's episode was recorded on the exact spot where Lieutenant James Cook made first contact with the Maori people on October 8th, 1769. Subscribe to the Trail Less Traveled podcast on iTunes and check out traillesstraveled.net to follow the show as it is recorded on location around the world. I would like to thank my guest for this week, Sheridan Gundry. Sheridan was born in Auckland and received a Bachelor's of Arts in English and Anthropology with a focus on Maori studies and linguistics. Sheridan is an award-winning journalist who works as a media team leader for Gisborne Civil Defense and Marine Oil Spill Response. Sheridan has written five books and her most recent book is titled A Splendid Isolation which covers a general history of Gisborne and the east coast of New Zealand's North Island. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and my goal for the show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, or on location around the world in order to find these adventurers and talk to them in their natural habitat. My adventure tip this week is to wake up at sunrise 
to have the best attractions all to yourself while avoiding crowds. It's also a magical time for photos due to soft, diffused light and usually easier to interact with locals. Sketchy areas are also less dangerous in the morning. Honest, hardworking people wake up early and most of the time, scammers and criminals sleep in. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week's adventure, please get outside and shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar simply cannot shred itself. <laughs>